Hello and welcome to Money Covered, a monthly podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints, claims and risk management in the financial services sector. I'm Rachel Healy, one of the co-hosts on this podcast, and I'll be talking to our guests about topical issues relevant to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities, such as IFA's asset managers, SIPs and brokers, as well as those regulated by the pensions regulator, including pension trustees, alongside issues for accountants and offshore professionals. Welcome to Rob Morris and Ash Daniels as guests on the podcast. And as our first guest, a special thank you to both of them for being the money-covered guinea pigs. Before we kick off with the issues Rob and Ash have picked out as March's highlights, it's probably helpful to discuss in a bit of detail the other areas that deserve a mention for this month. I also want to point out before we start that we've had to re-record part of this podcast given the handing down of the judgment in Adams and Carey. So Rob recorded on the 25th of March and Ash records on the day that the judgment has been handed down. So for the other headlines in March... First, in the accountants area, we've had the development that the government has introduced laws requiring independent reviews of pre-PAC administration sales to connected individuals, such as shareholders. We've had the government white paper setting out its proposals for audit reform and corporate governance, entitled Restoring Trust in Audit and Corporate Governance which is going to be a shake-up for the audit market in particular, but equally has implications for those in the director and officer's insurance area, with the consultation to close on the 8th of July. We have guidance and developments following the Pension Schemes Act 2021, which received royal assent back in January. This includes some guidance from the pension regulator on its new criminal powers. The Woodford saga continues with developments with the Jersey regulator, as Neil Woodford looks to launch out in Jersey. We've also started to see the fallout from Green Seal Capital and what might come of that. The government has also released a consultation with respect to requiring all tax advisors to hold professional indemnity insurance. We've also seen the Financial Ombudsman Service complaint data for the third quarter, with increases in defined benefit complaints and a dip in SIP complaints. And we'll see how that continues or not following the judgment that Ash is going to talk about. So March has been a busy month, which also includes the blockage of the Suez Canal and a chance to meet friends and family in your back garden. So with all that background, let's turn to the key topics for this month. Ash, welcome to the podcast. Please can you let listeners know what's caught your eye this month? Of course, thanks for having me. Well, we were going to be discussing the hearing in Adams and Carey, but of course, judgment has just been handed down. So we're slightly re-recording this to, to take into account the decision of the Court of Appeal. So before we get to the Court of Appeal decision, can you just remind listeners, Ash, briefly about the core facts and why this case has got so much in terms of headlines and why it's so important. Of course. So Mr Adams transferred his existing personal pension plan into a SIP, which was administered by Carey, who are now trading his options, 
following the involvement of CLMP, who were an unregulated introducer. So Mr Adams instructed options to purchase rental units from Store First, which was a company that leased storage pods across the north of England with the monies that were held in his SIP. Now, options carried out that transaction on an execution-only basis, as they were instructed and as is the norm in the SIP market. Mr Adams' investment in Store First didn't perform well and the investment was left worthless. Now, options were the only regulated entity in the chain and Mr Adams therefore issued proceedings against them. Now, this was the first time that the duties of a SIP provider had been reviewed and determined by the court. So it was very important and it was of wide interest, not just to the SIP market, but to the financial services market as a whole. So last year we had the High Court judgment. And as we're talking, the Court of Appeal has just handed down its judgment. So what happened, if anything, in the interim that's worth mentioning and potentially had an impact on the Court of Appeal and how they came to their decision? Well, we have the High Court decision in July last year of FCA and Avocade. Um, Now, here, the High Court found that Avocade, who were an unauthorised introducer, had engaged in regulated activities of arranging and advising on investments. The FCA argued that Avocade provided a pension report service, they made misleading statements, and that ultimately persuaded consumers to transfer their pensions into SIPs. Now, money was then put into alternative investments, such as hot pods, not store pods. These are office spaces available for rent, as well as tree plantations and Brazilian property developments. So the usual sort of investments that we see. Now, Avocade has been granted permission to appeal and the hearing is due to take place in July this year. The FCA, as a party to the Avocade claim and as an intervener in Adams, had attempted to have the appeals heard together, something that the Court of Appeal rejected. And despite this, at the beginning of the Court of Appeal hearing in Adams, counsel for the FCA did ask them to consider the Avocade decision and any overlap there may have been, particularly in relation to the finding that Avocade had engaged in regulated activities. Counsel for Mr Adams considered that the cases should be distinguished on a simple matter, that Avocade did much more than CLMP did. Now, in Avocade, there were transcripts of evidence of involvement from Avocade, whereas the evidence of what CLMP did was very little in comparison. Well, we've probably left listeners long enough in suspense as to the Court of Appeals decision. Can you talk us through the judgment, please, Ash? Of course. Well, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. So at the outset, we'll sort of just talk about uh, the decision. So options lost on, on Section 27 of FSMA, which renders the SIP unenforceable effectively. They did, however, succeed in the appeal against COPS 2.1.1R. So I'll discuss those in a little bit more detail now. So arguably, Section 27 was the biggest element of the appeal, and it was what most time was spent on. Mr Adams alleged that his option SIP was necessarily entered into as a consequence of something said or done by CLMP in contravention of the general prohibition, which therefore rendered the SIP unenforceable. Effectively, the allegation was that CLMP had done something that they were not authorised to do by either advising on or arranging Mr Adams' SIP with options. And as a result, the transfers to the options SIP and investment in store first had to be unwound. Now, in deciding whether to uphold the allegation, the Court of Appeal had to consider whether CLMP had breached the general prohibition by carrying on these regulated activities. Two activities were relied upon, advising on investments and arranging investments. Now, this raised a number of issues. So what was the designated investment? Was it the option SIP and or the store first investment? Did CLMP arrange that designated investment? Did CLMP advise on that designated investment? And did Mr Adams enter into the designated investment as a consequence of what CLMP did? 
In terms of what was the designated investment, now this is a quite a complicated point, so we won't spend too long on it. Effectively, the High Court had considered that actually it was just the creation of the SIP. The Court of Appeal have said, no, you've got to look at all three points. So the disinvestment of Mr Adams's personal pension plan, the creation of the SIP with options, and the investment in store first. Now, of course, this is completely different to the High Court's view. And despite the fact that the store first investment wasn't a designated investment, looking at the whole picture, it can be concluded as so. The next question to ask is whether CLMP provided advice. Now, Mr. Adams argued that three parts of the transaction, which I've just mentioned, the sale of the personal pension plan, the option SIP, and the investment in store first, all involved regulated advice. The Court of Appeal found that whilst ordinarily the giving of information without comment wouldn't amount to advice, the giving of information which was given during the process of a selection of an investment can be deemed to influence the decision of that recipient and is therefore capable of being advice. The Court of Appeal went further and confirmed that advice on the merits of an investment doesn't need to include information about that relevant transaction. So features and advantages, for example, don't need to be expanded upon in order for it to be considered advice. And finally, the Court of Appeal held that Mr Adams had been advised to switch his pension to the option SIP, as the recommendation was to invest in store first, but that also carried with it advice to switch to an option SIP. Now, options argued that they had two SIPs available, so therefore it wasn't advising on a specific SIP. However, there was only one SIP in reality available to Mr Adams on the basis that the second option SIP wouldn't permit investments in store pods. Now, the next question is, did CLMP arrange the option SIP? Now, this involves two questions. Did CLMP arrange the SIP and did that bring about the transaction to which the arrangements relate? Now, Mr. Adams relied on six steps, and I'll just run through them very briefly. This included procuring the letter of authority to deal with his existing personal pension plan, procuring the discharge form from that pension plan, undertaking money laundering investigations, completions of the options SIP application form, and instructions towards store first, and explanations that CLMP were expected to provide in relation to the key features and their terms of business. Now, the Court of Appeal first considered what bring about required in practice, Now, most of us will be familiar with the but-for test for causation. The Court of Appeal found that the words weren't consistent with that test, but also that it didn't mean there needed to be a direct connection, and instead the arrangements must play a role of significance. The Court of Appeal, having looked at the six steps and in light of their view of the bring-about test, found that those that met the test were procuring the letter of authority, undertaking money laundering investigations, and completing the application form, which is arguably quite a low bar. The High Court analysis that CLMP's acts didn't result in the transaction were rejected on the basis that the Court of Appeal considered what CLMP did was significantly instrumental in the transaction and there was a direct causal link. Now, the final question is, did Mr Adams enter the transaction as a consequence of what CLMP did? The Court of Appeal, having found that the arrangements brought about that transaction, just simply stated that the inconsequence of test had been met and didn't really discuss this in further detail. So as a result, the Section 27 claim succeeded. Now, the options did have a defence under Section 28 of FUSMA. So although the Court of Appeal had found that CLMP had acted in a way that breached Section 27, that didn't mean the options SIP had to be unwound. So options argued Section 28, which effectively allows a court to uphold an agreement, in this case the SIP, if the court considered it just and equitable to do so. So when considering whether it was just and equitable to uphold the SIP, 
the court had to have regard to whether options knew that CLMP was doing something it was not authorised to do. Now, they found that knew meant actual knowledge and not constructive knowledge, and that options didn't have actual knowledge of CLMP's unauthorised act. Now, that being said, they still went on to find that it was appropriate to take into account constructive knowledge when they were performing the balancing act of what is just and equitable. On balance, the Court of Appeal decided not to exercise their discretion, citing the following reasons, although this isn't an exhaustive list, it simply said that it included the following factors. One of the main aims of FUSMA is consumer protection, and consumers should effectively be protected against their own folly. So even in this case where Mr Adams had decided to take the investment despite the risks that he was aware of and the fact that he had misled options. Number two, Section 27 was designed to throw the risk effectively back at authorised entities when doing business with unregulated sources. Number three, the volume of introductions put options on notice or ought to of of the danger that CLMP was recommending clients to invest in store pods and set up options SIPs for that purpose. The Court of Appeal judgment references over 500 clients coming to options with these investments and suggesting that that should have been a warning sign. Uh, fourthly, by May 2012, options were aware that CLMP had misinformed them about incentives that their customers were receiving. And finally, options had actioned Mr Adams's investment after it had become aware of the problems with CLMP including that one of the directors was on an FCA blacklist. So that's section 27 and 28 summarised in, in a sort of very probably long-winded way, but it's, there's no short way, I'm afraid. So we'll now move on to the breach of COPS. So the arguments around COPS were somewhat of a different battleground. So counsel for Mr Adams didn't really deal with it in much detail at all. I assume hoping to leave it to counsel for the FCA. However, counsel for the FCA submissions were somewhat stunted, when they started talking about the facts of the case and counsel for options objected on the basis that, as intervener, the FCA was only there to discuss the guidelines in place. So that sort of made a a somewhat shorter version of the submissions for COPS. However, in effect, the arguments that Mr Adams made at the Court of Appeal were fundamentally different in the Court of Appeal's view to those that were pleaded. Mr Adams was therefore advancing a case that was effectively different to that found in his pleadings and, more importantly, which options hadn't had any opportunity to respond to at trial. So as a result, the Cobbs appeal was rejected on that basis. Notwithstanding that, Lord Justice Newey did confirm that he considered Mr Adams might have struggled to overcome the judge's findings at High Court, that actually any breach of duty was not causative of loss in any event. So as a result, the High Court findings, including in relation to the need to consider the contract when looking at relevant duties, can still be relied upon. Thank you, Ash. As you say, quite a bit to talk about in a judgment that is over 60 pages long. So thank you for taking us through that. And I think just to reiterate some points that were made, I think the key thing on Section 27 now is that Unlike what the High Court did, which was just look at whether or not CLMP had advised and arranged on the SIP, the Court of Appeal decided to take a much broader view as to what you look at as part of the transaction when looking in turn as to whether or not a party had arranged or advised on something by looking not just at the SIP, but also at the investment at Iver End in store first, even though that was a lease, not a regulated investment. I think the other key bit to come out of the, the Court of Appeal judgment is the application of Section 28 and where you can get forgiveness from the court when a third party does something that they're not allowed to do and therefore breaches Section 27. 
So there's an awful lot coming out of it. And well done, Ash, for, for taking us through what is quite a complicated area and quite a long judgment. But standing back from that, and obviously we're just starting to digest the judgment, but what first impressions strike you, Ash, in terms of the potential impact? Well, I think there's an impact on the SIP industry itself and then, then the wider financial services sector. So I'll start with the SIP industry which our listeners will, I'm sure, be aware have faced a lot of pressure in recent years, probably in a large part due to uncertainty over whether they could rely on the scope of their duty, which was defined in contracts, and also numerous FSA and later FCA publications, which are effectively, in some cases, retrospectively expanding that duty. So whilst the High Court decision provided somewhat of a reprieve, the question is, is that going to last now in light of this Court of Appeal decision? I think there is likely to be a bit of a delay at the FOS. It took them a long time to look at the High Court decision and and consider it and make a decision on that basis. I think it's also important to remember that the High Court findings remain intact in respect to the application of COPS, as I've already mentioned. So effectively, COPS must be seen through the prism of the contract. So COPS doesn't expand the contractual duties. Another important point which FOS often don't consider is that causation is relevant and it must be tested for. One thing that obviously the High Court or the Court of Appeal didn't consider, and it wasn't pleaded, so it's not surprising, is the wider duties in tort in relation to duties of a SIP provider. Like I said, that wasn't actually tested at the High Court or Court of Appeal, and it wasn't pleaded. No expert evidence of the duties of a SIP provider was undertaken at trial. So effectively, that's our sort of good news in relation to SIP providers, but also the wider market. I think the unauthorised introducer element is is probably a bit concerning. It's a a very low bar, effectively. The Court of Appeal have said if you have an unauthorised introducer who is involved in really sort of any administrative capacity by the looks of it, helping out with the money laundering documents, that's enough to tip it over the edge. So I think unauthorised introducers aren't just limited to SIP providers, it's the financial services as a whole. And I think entities will start looking at whether they want to be working with unauthorised introducers in light of this. The FCA have always been very clear that there's nothing wrong with working with unauthorised introducers. They've never regulated against it, but effectively they've always said that the risk falls back onto the regulated entity. There was also mention of the Tenet Connect case, which our listeners I'm sure will be familiar with, effectively agreeing and approving that case, particularly in relation to acts of appointed representatives. So we think something to come out of this is that principals are going to have to be much more cautious about any acts or sort of activities that their appointed representatives are carrying out. Thank you, Ash, for running us through the Carey Adams judgment. Thank you for having to redo this part of the podcast. (laughs) Having waited over two years, the first judgment, we wait less than a couple of weeks for the Court of Appeals. So there we go. Me and you can probably talk about pension transfers all day, Rob particularly given what we're dealing with and what's on our desks. But it's probably right that we look at a few specific things that have happened during March 2021 and and cover them off for listeners. So first of all, we've seen the FCA announce changes to the redress methodology for defined benefit pension transfer cases. Now, this is horrendously complicated, but can you talk us through what the changes are, why they've been made and where that leaves complaints that haven't yet had a redress calculation or a due one? Yes, as you say, it is horribly complicated. So in in simple terms, when a firm is found to have provided unsuitable defined benefit transfer advice, redress has to be calculated using an FCA prescribed methodology. 
And that methodology requires a complex actuarial calculation to be undertaken, which involves a whole host of different assumptions to be made. Now, those assumptions, which are published by the FCA and set by the FCA, include assumptions about the difference between the Retail Prices Index, RPI, and the Consumer Prices Index, CPI. And in November last year, the government announced that it would make changes to the way in which RPI as a measure is calculated in the future. So these changes won't come in until 2030, but it impacts redress calculations now because part of the redress calculation involves making assumptions about what will happen to an individual's pension in the future. So because of this, the FCA is going to change the current assumptions um, because if you use the existing assumptions, that might result in undercompensation for some individuals. So the FCA is going to change the assumptions now, which makes sense. However, from a practical perspective, it means two things. One is relatively straightforward, and I shouldn't think unduly controversial. And that is, since the FCA announced these changes, all redress calculations should be put on hold until the new assumptions are published. Now, it was said that these would be published in the middle of this month. As far as I can tell, we're beyond the middle of this month and we still haven't seen the assumptions. But there we go. We're expecting them imminently. I've certainly seen one FOS final determination where the ombudsman has said that the firm must pay redress and they can choose either to pay redress using the existing assumptions, but to then later on recalculate loss using the new assumptions. And if there is a shortfall in redress, they'd have to pay additional sums. Or as an alternative, they can just wait until the new assumptions are published and then do it all in one hit. Now, my advice to that firm and to any firm would be there's no point in doing the calculation twice because you have to pay an actuary twice to do the calculation. So you may as well wait. So I think for cases where there has not yet been a redress calculation undertaken, the sensible thing to do is wait until the new assumptions are published. However, these changes to the assumptions will be backdated to November 2020, which is when the government made the announcements about the changes to RPI. That then means that redress calculations that have been done since January this year might need to be revisited, in the words of the FCA. Now, this is the FCA changing the goalposts retrospectively yet again. It's something that they're quite keen on doing. And they've even indicated that they expect claims that have been settled on a full and final settlement basis to be revisited if they're impacted by these changes. Now, quite frankly, I have no idea on what basis the FCA think they can force firms to reopen claims that have been resolved on a full and final settlement basis. But there you are, that is their current stance. So the real problem could be where firms have paid redress based on redress calculations that were carried out after January this year. They may have to reopen those cases. And if there's additional compensation, they may have to pay that extra money. 
it does seem unfair that firms might have to pay the actuarial costs of a further redress calculation and then potentially pay further money in redress because I doubt the FCA would be very happy if the redress calculation went down, that they asked for the money back from the customer. But there we have it. We'll wait and see what the new assumptions say and how they work out in terms of the calculation of redress. So that's one issue that's come up in March 2021. The other thing that's been in the news is the Rolls-Royce pension scheme. Um, Can you explain to us, Rob, and, and for listeners, what's going on there? And what we might see next in relation to that scheme. Yes. So in May 2020, Rolls-Royce announced that it was going to be cutting quite a large number of jobs, about 9,000 jobs. And following that, the FCA and the pension ombudsman were effectively tipped off by the trustees of Rolls-Royce's defined benefit pension scheme that some members who were facing redundancy were being cold called by advisor firms about the possibility of transferring their defined benefit pensions. That rang some alarm bells with the FCA, not least because, as I'll come on to, they'd encountered significant problems and continue to encounter significant problems in relation to the British Steel Pension Scheme scandal. So because the FCA was worried that they might have another British Steel type scandal on their hands, they fairly quickly made a data request to quite a large number of advisor firms who they believed had been giving some advice to Rolls-Royce pension scheme members. This month, it's been reported that the FCA, following that data request, have since reviewed files from about 65 firms that advised on Rolls-Royce pension transfers. And of those 65 firms, one firm has reportedly been ordered to pay redress to clients, and two firms have been asked to vary their permissions, which is a way of saying they've been told to stop carrying out pension transfer advice. Now, If that's the end of the matter, and we don't know for sure that it is, that's actually quite a low proportion. If only one firm of 65 has actually been asked to undertake any kind of redress exercise, that doesn't seem to me to be too much of an issue. And and maybe, in actual fact, there wasn't such a problem with the Rolls-Royce scheme as there perhaps was with the British Steel pension scheme. In contrast, in fact, the FCA itself continues to be criticised for its slow reactions in respect of the British Steel Pension Scheme defined benefit transfer scandal. We are aware, though, as a firm, and it's also now been reported recently, that the FCA has taken quite a lot of action in relation to the British Steel Pension Scheme advisors. We know it's taken enforcement action against some firms, and we know it's imposed past business reviews on some firms as well. Some MPs have been asking for the FCA to impose a consumer redress scheme in respect of British Steel pension transfers. But I actually suspect that most firms with significant involvement in British Steel transfers have already been asked by the FCA to carry out a past business review, which involves potentially paying redress to clients. It's just not necessarily public knowledge of the scale 
of that. So hopefully Rolls-Royce won't be the new British steel. The figures don't necessarily imply that at the moment, but it's something to wait and see. And with the difficulties in the economy, it'd be interesting to see if there are other companies that come under difficulties and then individuals look to transfer their final salary pensions and we end up in a, in a similar situation again. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But you mentioned there, Rob, MPs calling for well, someone to account perhaps at the FCA in relation to what happened with British Steel. One of the reasons it seems to me that defined benefit pension transfers, final salary transfers end up in the news all the time is because the Work and Pensions Committee seem to be talking about final salary transfers pretty much every week and definitely do have their bit between their teeth in terms of pension transfers. They're going through a review at the moment in relation to the pension freedoms. So looking into your crystal ball, what do you see next for final salary pensions? Yeah, so as you say, the the Work and Pensions Committee inquiry is quite a broad inquiry. It's not just into pension transfers per se, although that obviously forms part of it. It's an inquiry into the impact of the pension freedoms themselves and also into protection of pension savers more generally. So the first phase of the review, which has been going on for nearly a year now, looked at pension scams. So obviously there was concern, particularly at the time and ongoing, that people were being persuaded to access their pension money, which is often an individual's biggest asset outside of their family home. People were being persuaded to access that money and then invest in dubious, if not outright fraudulent investments. So the first phase of the review has been undertaken. The second and current phase is looking at the decisions that savers make about accessing their pensions, which of course can include transferring from a defined benefit scheme in order to put the money into a personal pension arrangement so that people can then take advantage of the pension freedoms. The key issue being that if your money is in a final salary scheme, you can't take advantage of the pension freedoms, which some people view as a disadvantage. The FCA might say, well, actually, you do have the benefit of a guaranteed income for the rest of your life, which is arguably worth more than a lump sum of money. So the current inquiry is looking at the options, the advice and the guidance that's available to individuals when accessing their pension in retirement. And of course, somewhat ironically, the availability of advice is diminishing rapidly as more and more firms are being forced to give up their permission to provide pension transfer advice. Many, in fact, think that the myriad of options now that are available to those who are accessing their pensions under the pension freedoms are just too great. Quite frankly, it's an incredibly complicated area, even for professionals in the field, and especially when you start to try and account for the tax implications of how money is taken from a pension. And so it'll be really interesting to see what the inquiry comes back with once its review is concluded. The third part of the inquiry, which is yet to begin, will look at saving for later life and what needs to be done to help people to plan and save for their retirement. So as far as defined benefit transfers are concerned, I would say that we're seeing signs now that the worst of the boom in defined benefit transfers, which 
as we've discussed, occurred after the introduction of the pension freedoms, there's signs that that boom is now diminishing. The rules have been changed with regard to pension transfer advice, and there are differing views on those rule changes. But I think at the very least, it can be said that there is at least some additional clarity on what the FCA expects. I also think that the FCA's publication of its defined benefit advice assessment tool, or DBAT, as you'll hear people refer to it, is a positive step. So this is a tool that's designed to allow the FCA and firms to retrospectively review advice that's already been given in order to assess whether that advice was suitable or not. But clearly, the tool can also be used in a forward-looking way, and firms could, and I would argue, ought to be encouraged to use the tool to assess their advice as they're giving it, because it will give them some protection and comfort to know that they're complying with what the FCA expects from them when giving defined benefit transfer advice. So we do have some more clarity as to what the FCA expects, and we're seeing a a reduction in the number of people transferring out of defined benefit schemes. I think when you also add to the mix the fact that final salary pension schemes are still very much in decline, certainly over the medium to long term, very few of us will actually have a defined benefit pension. So Overall, transfers will have a diminishing relevance as a result, I think. And I think actually the the big question is a much broader one, namely how will society and the state ensure that people have sufficient resources in retirement in the future? And from our perspective, in terms of assisting and working for the advice market, we can only hope that the government avoids the temptation to make even more wholesale changes to pension regulation, or that if they do make changes, they do it with rather more care and rather more consultation than the government did when it introduced the pension freedoms. Thank you, Rob. I think we are six years on from the pension freedoms and we're still talking about them as if they were almost yesterday, that their impact has been that wide and and that long term, much like the changes in the 80s and and how long it took in the 90s for all of those issues to, to finally shape themselves out. We're probably going to be talking about the pension freedoms and issues in relation to it for for quite a while, including on the podcast. So thank you to Rob and thank you to Ash for their input today and, and for coming along to our first ever Money Covered podcast. Of course, thank you to those who are listening. Please do join us next month when we review the key developments from April. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again next month when we'll be discussing the hot topics in the financial services sector. Please do click to subscribe and be sure to check out our other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Finally, many thanks to today's guests, as well as everyone behind the scenes at RPC that make this podcast possible.